you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah. Chapter 13, Isaiah 13. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah 13 and the majority of Isaiah 14 as well. As we do that this afternoon, we're stepping into the second major section of the vision of Isaiah, which runs from chapter 13 through uh, chapter 27. Uh, This is probably one of the most unfamiliar parts of Isaiah, and um, I doubt that I've ever heard a sermon from Isaiah uh, 13 through 27, maybe, Um, but uh, there is much to be found here. My hope is to to cover this section, chapters 13 through 27, in the next seven weeks. And if you kind of map that out, that means we're going to dig deep into some chapters and some we're just going to allude to. Um, Those seven weeks are going to take us through March 1st, just to kind of give you a plan of where we're heading. And then after that, we'll do a four-week series. The elders are going to teach through a four-week series on stewardship of different areas of our lives. Um, So that'll be four weeks. That'll take us to Palm Sunday and Easter. And so we'll think on Palm Sunday and Easter. Easter Sunday is April 12th. So we've got seven weeks here in Isaiah 13 through 27, four weeks on stewardship, and then we uh, enter into uh, Holy Week together. So that's kind of where we're heading. But for now, we're here in Isaiah 13 and 14. And while it's a new section, it picks up on a very similar theme. It's this call to trust the Lord alone that we've been hearing over and over again and that we need to continue to hear. Uh, In life, we typically trust people who have proven themselves to be trustworthy. Uh, You wouldn't allow a random stranger to borrow your car, but you might allow a friend to um, because you know them and you know whether or not they're trustworthy. If you need something important done and there's a deadline, you look for someone who's reliable. Maybe you work with some people and you know if something needs to get done that you can trust them to get the job done. And you know there's some people that you can't trust to get the job done. Those people are not the ones that you're going to put really important things into their hands. Uh, Kids, maybe you have a a book that you love or a toy that that you really like. And you have a sibling that you just don't trust that they're going to take care of it. And you won't give it to them. Or a friend maybe that's the the same way. We all put our trust in people in different ways. and, And we put our trust in people that have proven themselves to be trustworthy. The Bible is a revelation of of who God is. And in large part, as the words of scripture reveal God to us, they are proving that God is trustworthy, that he's someone that we can put, that we can stake our lives on. They they show us his character so that we can know that, that he is faithful. The Bible is calling us to faith in God, and it's not a blind faith in some unknown God or in some capricious, fickle, flighty God, but it's faith in a God whom we know through the scriptures and whom we have every reason to trust based on who he is revealed to be. These chapters here in 13 through 27, then um, they they reveal to us who God is. They continue this task of revealing the, the trustworthiness of God. And they pick up on a theme actually that's hinted at in chapters 10 and 11, namely that God is the ruler and king of the nations. 
that he is sovereign over and in control of the whole world. From chapters 13 through 23, there are 10 oracles. You can tell that's how they're they're titled. You can see 13 verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon. If you move forward just a a little bit, you'll see in, in, in chapter 14 verse 28, in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle, the beginning of chapter 15, an oracle concerning Moab, and so on. These are 10 oracles, 10 divine messages of judgment against the nations. Most people split them into two sections that run parallel, uh, two sets of five. Both sets begin with an oracle against Babylon, and both contain an oracle against God's people, whether it's Israel or Judah, and that's always in the fourth position. So they kind of run parallel uh, if you look at them. Um, These 10 oracles, they, they reveal the judgment that is coming on the nations. But their purpose is, is deeper than just simply showing God's justice and his righteousness. Because they're given to God's people and they're intended to build up the faith of God's people then and now in our day by giving us a vision of who God is as the one who is ruling over those who appear to be ruling over the earth. And in doing so, they give us this proper perspective on the apparent power of the nations and the apparent power of the entire world and help us to see that God is the one who is truly in charge. Uh, To that end, let me read you two um, parts from different commentaries. David Jackman says this. He says, our worldview needs to be shaped by the conviction that God is governing the history of our planet for the outworking of his eternal purposes. God is governing the history of our planet for the outworking of his eternal purposes through the faith of his new covenant people, the worldwide church. God is in control. Uh, Barry Webb says much the same thing. He writes these words in, in Isaiah 13 through 27 in particular are spoken to remind Israel that no matter what the nations do to her, her final destiny is secure because it is the Lord, not they, who shapes the course of history. He is the Lord of the nations and his judgment on them has as its ultimate goal, the salvation of his people. So we're going to take that larger theme of this this big section and, and think about it in view of chapters 13 and 14. And in light of that, I want to say that the call of today's passage is this, entrust your present and your future to the Lord of all. Entrust your present and your future to the Lord of all. Emphasis on Lord of all. If we're going to do that, though, if we're going to entrust ourselves to God, then we're going to need to see the futility of the powers in this world that seem so strong and that beg for our allegiance. And we're going to need to see the unmatched strength of the Lord. We're going to need to see the the weakness of the nations. And in contrast, we're going to need to see the power of, of God. Entrust your present and your future to the Lord of all. On that that second part of seeing the power of God, my hope is that we would not only see that that God rules over the, the nations and their rulers, but also dip into this idea that God rules over the unseen spiritual forces of this world. And in seeing these things, my hope is that we would entrust our present and our future to the Lord of all that we would live lives depending on on his grace, leaning on his strength, standing firm in faith, no matter what comes our way. And we're led to do that through this announcement against Babylon. 
that begins in chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, in chapters 1 through 12, Assyria was the central enemy of God's people. And while they show up in chapter 14, verses 24 through 27, it's the kingdom of Babylon that now takes center stage. It was Babylon that would eventually conquer and capture God's people. The Babylonians emerge as the great threat to the surrounding nations. And yet even they would be conquered, we're told, which leads us to to the hope and the confidence of the first two verses of chapter 14 and then this taunt of against Babylon at the, at the, the, in the rest of chapter 14. So you can see a kind of an outline that I tried to put there in the bulletin. We can think about the first oracle of chapter 13 as a pronouncement of judgment on Babylon, followed by this taunt song against Babylon in chapter 14, verses 3 to 27. And then there's this message of hope in these two verses of chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, just kind of sandwiched in between those two things. So seeing that larger structure, let's begin by reading Isaiah 13, 1 through 14, 2. Um, and as we read this, aren't we reminded how um, prophecy is, is very foreign to us? This is not how we, nor- this is not like the literature we normally read. And so we have to engage and really try to understand the context of this. So I, I encourage you to, to focus in on the passage um, We're not going to understand everything here, but let's get the big picture of it, okay? Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, Or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. 
They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks to lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their their ostriches will dwell. And their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand. And its days will not be prolonged. Chapter 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them will, will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppress them. If these verses are calling us to entrust our present and our future to the Lord of all, then chapter 13 is encouraging us to do that because he is Lord over all earthly powers. That's what I want us to think about, that he is Lord over all earthly powers. Babylon was a big deal. Uh, Babylon was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, if you know anything about your history, home to the Hanging Gardens. And it was a force to be reckoned with, just like its kings were, like King Nebuchadnezzar that we read about. Their their military power and their cultural influence was was massive. You might think about the mighty nations of present day, of our world now, nations even like our own, that we assume will never be toppled. That was Babylon. Babylon was one of the great powers of the day. And yet the Lord is clear that even they are going to meet a day of reckoning. Just walk through this this prediction of coming judgment with me. We'll walk through these verses briefly. In verses 2 through 5, the the Lord is gathering, he's mustering, he's commanding, he's, he's summoning those who he's going to use to judge Babylon. You remember that like he'd used Assyria to judge Israel, he's forming this army from the nations that he's going to use like an ax or like a a saw, an army that we find out includes, uh, verse 17, the Medes. So he's gathering this army to punish Babylon. And in light of that coming judgment, verse six calls all the people of Babylon to wail and to be dismayed because of this coming destruction. It was going to come on them suddenly like, Labor pains, verse 8. And desolation would mark the earth as well as the sun and the moon and the stars, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Verse 11 is key in this passage because it reveals the reason for this coming judgment, which was because of Babylon's evil and iniquity, along with their arrogance and their pomp and their pride. Babylon, in fact, is used in Scripture as the symbol of human pride. From the very beginning, Babylon represents human pride and arrogance. You remember the first place we, we hear about Babylon is, is, is when the people of Babel come together and seek to build a tower to reach up to heaven. In pride and in arrogance, they said, Genesis eleven four, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. 
That's the roots of Babylon. And still the people of Babel were seeking to make a name for themselves. And yet we find that they would be destroyed. And we're told that people in their cities would become rarer than gold. It'd be easier to mine for gold and find it than to find a Babylonian. The violence against Babylon found in verses 14 through 18 is shocking when we read it, isn't it? Especially in its reference to infants and and children. And yet, what it's showing us is that the ways that Babylon had been ruthless and wicked towards others would be turned on them. The result of all of this is that their glorious land would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told there in that last section. Their palaces would become the haunt of wild animals. Their fortresses would become the homes of all these different wild creatures. If you want to picture what that's like, just think about Washington, D.C. Think about all of its monuments and all of the the beautiful buildings that we see there. And now think of them reduced to ruins. And think about wild animals roaming in the Capitol building. Hyenas living in the White House. That's the picture of what Babylon's going to be like. That was not a political statement in any way, okay? So you can think about that however you want. But just, that's, that's what Babylon would be like. All of these things that look so glorious would be ruins and would be filled with wild animals. History tells us this came true. In 539, Babylon fell to King Cyrus. And that reminds us of the trustworthiness of scriptures, that, that this, what God predicts, happens. And yet that historical event is not all that this chapter is concerned with. We're not just concerned about the fall of Babylon. This isn't just a history lesson. Again, Barry Webb is helpful. He makes this connection. He says, the fall of Babylon merges in this oracle with the, with the final great day of the Lord. You see the day of the Lord referenced in verse 6, and you see it also in verse Verse 9, and it, the, the fall of Babylon merges with that, that final great day of the Lord when all human arrogance will be judged and all human pomp and power will be exposed for the hollow things that they are. The historical event is described in cosmic, larger-than-life terms because of the greater reality that it, it anticipates and points to, the eventual fall of the whole world system which stands in opposition to God. The day of the Lord came for Babylon. And we know that there's also this great day of the Lord that is still coming. If Babylon symbolizes human defiance and pride against God, and they were brought low, then the the coming day of the Lord will also bring down all of the pomp and the arrogance of wicked people and sinful nations. When we see that connection, that wider picture, we begin to see that Isaiah 13 and 14 has something to say to us about the power structures of this world. Nations are at the top of that that list, leaders and rulers, presidents and kings who presume that their power will never cease. We're tempted to trust in these things, to trust in these external forces, to give them our ultimate allegiance, to be afraid of the powerful men and women of this world and what they might do. But we know that like the milk you bought in the store this week, kingdoms and presidents have an expiration date. And we don't need to trust them. We don't need to hope in them. Because one day, those that war against God will come to an end. I think about nations. We might think about big companies in this world who call us to trust in them. Banks and financial institutions and insurance agents and hospitals and drug companies. 
But our hope is not in these power structures in our world. They offer temporary help, but not fully. Our hope is not in them. Our hope is not in false religion that calls us to trust in it. But it too is going to fall on the great day of the Lord. Think about all these other these power structures that may come to your mind. They're all going to fall on the last day. And only those whose hope is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness, as we sang, will stand in the last day. So there's something deeper happening here than just the fall of Babylon. Do you see that? That we see here not just the futility of Babylon, but the futility of all earthly power and the reality and certainty that they are all coming to a desolation. And we're told not to trust in human strength, but to trust in the Lord, the Lord who is over all earthly powers. And yet I want us to go deeper still because the cosmic language of chapter 13 and also the taunt of chapter 14 lead us to see that God is also Lord over not just these earthly powers, but over the unseen spiritual powers of this world. That's the second thing I want us to see, that God is Lord over all spiritual powers. We're going to come back to chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, but as we think about this idea that God is Lord over all spiritual powers, I want us to look at chapter 14, verses 3 through 27. I'm not going to read all of them. Uh, it's described in verse 3 as a, as a taunt song. It's a song of, of triumph that, that God's people were called to sing over the king of Babylon in particular, but also over all those who set themselves against God. A taunt song. A song of mockery. It reminds us that there's going to be a day when the righteous will triumph over the wicked. When those who crush children, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, will themselves be crushed. When the oppression of the weak will cease. When the once strong will be punished. When fools who talk proudly of who they are and what they have done are going to be brought low and humbled by God himself. And in that day, we're going to sing a song, a taunt song against the wicked. Uh, Part of the image of verses 3 through 11 is of the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon has died. And he enters into Sheol, the realm of the dead. And as he enters in, everyone on earth is rejoicing at his death. And then all of the powerful rulers of the nations that had died before him, they stand up in Sheol and they greet him. And this is what they say, verses 10 and 11. It says, all of them will answer and say to you, king of Babylon, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. Mortality, death is the great equalizer, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 2.16, Solomon says, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. Death is the great equalizer. Therefore, our trust should never be in those that who are going to die just like we will. Your trust is not in nations or companies or money or leaders or anything else that one day is going to rot and be eaten by worms. Instead, our trust is to be in the one who has conquered death, 
Our trust is to be in the only one who died, who descended to Sheol, the realm of the dead, and who then came back to life. Think about this. Jesus was, was mocked on the cross as he died because he looked like every other human being as he hung there. They said to him, we thought you were something special. We thought you were the son of God. And look at you now. You're just like us. And he truly did die, didn't he? Because he was truly human. But death could not hold him because he was also truly God himself, sinless and guiltless. And therefore, when we imagine Jesus entering into Sheol, this realm of the dead, he's not mocked because he enters into the realm of the dead as the victor over it, as the victor over death itself. Because after three days, he rises again. And therefore, he calls us to entrust our souls to him because he's conquered death itself, unlike anyone else who calls for our allegiance. We arrive at 1412, and we start to see this cosmic scope. There's been hints of it, but we start to see it in full color. The language of chapter, uh, of this, this section has caused generations of Christians to say that there's more here than, than meets the eye. As we read it, we, we see that it's talking about the king of Babylon, but we also start to think about someone else who tried to exalt himself above the heavens only to be thrust down. This passage is often thought to be a description of the fall of Satan. In fact, the title that you see in verse 12, day star or morning star, is translated in Latin as Lucifer. That's the title that's given there. And so we, we, let's, let's read these verses. I want, I want to read the words of, of uh, Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 20. And tell me what you think. Who's it talking about? King of Babylon? Satan? Something else? Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of, da of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. What do you think? Opinion is divided. Um, Calvin said, no way, it's not Satan. Others said, yeah, it is. Uh, I think what we can certainly say is that the king of Babylon is in view here. Certainly he is, is part of this picture. Is it describing the fall of Satan? I don't know. At, at the very least, here's what I think. I think it's helping us to see that the power and the pomp of earthly rulers is much more complex than we might imagine. That there is something deeper going on with these power structures. In fact, the way that the Old Testament believers understood the world they said that supernatural evil was connected to corrupt human 
power structures, in any power structure, that, that behind the wickedness of the king of Babylon and of all kings, there's a deeper, more sinister, invisible power that is at work. Don't take my word for it, though. The passage we read in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 70 or the 72. There's a textual variant there to proclaim the kingdom. And that 70 number first shows up in the Tower of Babel. And other scriptures seem to indicate that this has to do with with a number of, of spiritual forces that were scattered when God confused the languages. And now the 70 are sent out, in a sense, to reign over those spiritual forces. They heal the sick and they cast out demons. And when they return, we read this in Luke 10, verses 17 through 20, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 14. Jesus says, it says here, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think that at least... Jesus is thinking about this passage in light of some sort of deeper spiritual thing that's going on. The fall of the king of Babylon is not simply the fall of an earthly king. It's the fall of a spiritual power of evil. And so that's why the, the language of, is about gods and, and the heavens and the stars and the mountains. It's, it's showing this cosmic sweep of what's going on and that we only see part of this. I was trying to explain some of this to my kids at the dinner table, that there's spiritual forces of good and evil at work behind the visible power structures that we see. It's a hard thing to explain to your kids around the dinner table. But one of them immediately made the connection. You know where they went? To Hitler. If you look at the example of Hitler in history, there's hardly any way to believe that that kind of evil, the kind of evil enacted by Nazi Germany, that that was simply the work of human pride. Isn't there something deeper that's going on there in these forces of evil that are fighting against us in this world? And it's not just Hitler. I think it causes us to take a step back and begin to ask if there's more going on in this world than what our eyes see. If there's more happening, if the, if the battle is much deeper than governments and nations and kings and companies and whatever else you might see. All of this, I think, begins to shed some light on important realities that should shape our daily lives. Things that we should be thinking about as we're going through our days, fighting for faith, trying to entrust ourselves to God. I'll give you three. The first is this, the cosmic danger of pride. The cosmic danger of pride. To exalt ourselves over God is demonic. It's cosmic treason against the creator. It's to join forces with those who would seek to exalt themselves without God, who would try to build a way back to him, a tower to reach heaven without his help. And how often we're tempted to think this way in big and in small ways, to trust ourselves rather than to trust the Lord to exalt ourselves rather than to exalt God, to attach ourselves to those that we think can get us what we want. At least part of the opposite of pride is faith. Not trusting 
in ourselves or anything else, but trusting in God. It, it, it's to walk through our day believing in him, believing in his promises, believing that, that sin brings death, believing that love of neighbor is good and right, that, that it's a victory over pride, which is a victory over evil itself. As you think about pride and you think about just how insidious it is, how wicked it is, we start to see that living a life of humble faith that loves others, that's not a small thing. It's a deep battle to continue to trust the Lord and to live in sacrifice to others. Related to the cosmic danger of pride, I think we see the treason of trusting anyone other than the Lord the treason of trusting anyone but God. When our hope is in some earthly power structure or person, when it's in politicians or money or companies, we run the risk of being led and driven by the forces of evil. If that's what's behind these worldly power structures and we attach ourselves to them, That's a scary place to be. We sell our soul's allegiance to darkness rather than light. I was thinking about this in light of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is today. Our hope for the end of abortion is not in politicians. It's not in courts and it's not in governments. Because if there's anything that's evil and wicked, it's the killing of unborn babies. And that's not just a human thing. It's demonic. There are power structures behind that. There's evil and wickedness behind that that's deeper than what we see on the external uh, front. God might use politicians and courts and governments, but the battle is fought elsewhere, isn't it? This is a spiritual battle. It's fought in prayer. It's fought in acts of deep love. It's fought in bold resistance to a culture of death. Don't put your hope in the government or in the court to deal with that because they can't deal with it. It's much deeper than, than what they are able to handle. Our hope for peace and prosperity for the furtherance of the kingdom is not in government. It's not in Washington. It's not in anywhere else. Our hope for the, for the furtherance of the kingdom is, is in God. Our hope for the furtherance of the kingdom is not in church leaders. It's not in denominations. It's in God. There's a treason involved in trusting anyone else. We have to be careful. Don't easily give your trust to someone other than God. The cosmic danger of pride, the treason of trusting in anyone other than God. The third reality that we'll close with is the the scope of the battle and the scope of the victory that Christ has won. The scope of the battle that we're in, just try to think about how big this battle is and also think about how great the victory is that Christ has bought for us. I think what we're starting to see is something that we know, but we just forget that there's there's a battle, isn't there? There's, there's this war between darkness and light, between good and evil. It's bigger than any Marvel movie that you've ever seen. That's kind of the scope we get, right? That these there's this battle that we watch on the, the big screen between good and evil. You know, that's reflecting something that's deeply true, that there is a cosmic battle unseen between darkness and light, between good and evil. And we often play around with our faith like it's something simple, like it's something weak, like it's something inconsequential. 
But Jesus says that the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom is what caused Satan to fall from heaven. That's what he says to the the 70 that went out. When you proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Familiar words, Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's a deep battle that we are involved in. The gods of money, sex, and power are waging war against our souls. There's something deep happening there. And we often just roll over and let them win. We don't fight the fight of faith. Do you see the scope of the battle? That this is a big deal. That your fight to trust in God, your fight to say no to sin, your fight to push against earthly powers is not something simple and it's not something small and it's not something inconsequential. It's something that's going to take supernatural help from God on a daily basis. And when you start to see the scope of the battle and you start to take a step back and maybe like Ezekiel, you know, our eyes are open to see what is is going on around us. Then we start to, to say, wow, what Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross is much bigger than I ever imagined. If the scope of the battle is that big, then it reminds us to be astonished at the victory that Christ has won. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, I think captures part of it. It says, in you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Often we stop there, but listen to this next. This is what he did on the cross, verse 15 of Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In the cross, Jesus has conquered all spiritual forces and powers. It's something we know now and something we will know fully on the great day of the Lord. But this is the place of victory that we fight from, that we fight for faith. We, we war against the darkness because of the power of the spirit in us, because of the victory that has already been secured for us and because of the hope that's set before us, that it will come true. This is how Isaiah 14, one through two, talks about that salvation that God's gonna bring us. It's a little bit more Old Testament language than maybe what you're used to in Paul. But listen to this, Isaiah 14, verses one and two. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors. What a great phrase. And rule over those who oppress them. What's that saying to us? It's saying that because of the cross, God comes to us in grace. He chooses us. He makes us his own. He takes us from being wandering sojourners and he gives us a home in him. 
He puts all your enemies under your feet. The sin and the power structures and the spiritual enemies that once ruled over us, we're told will soon be crushed under our feet. You who have been captive to sin and to darkness are set free. Words feel insufficient to talk about the scope of what God has done for us in Christ, but also about the battle that we are still in. But I would just say that, brothers and sisters, this fight of faith, this call for you to trust in the Lord, it's no small thing. I pray that God would open our eyes to see the the seriousness of the battle that we are in but also that he would open our eyes to see that the one that we are entrusting our our present and our future to, and that he is worthy of that trust, that he is Lord over all. He's over all earthly powers. He's over all spiritual forces. And on the great day of the Lord, we know this, that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess that Jesus alone is Lord, that he alone has power, that he alone is king. All praise to Jesus, Lord over all.